We'll open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to ask in particular a, a special request of the kids who are in the service this morning. And that's typically those who are, you know, 12, 11, 10, and under. And, and sometimes you wonder, why am I in here? Let me encourage you to listen very carefully today because this is a story with which most of you are very familiar. You've probably heard this story and know about this story, but I want you to listen very carefully and see if later you can tell your parents what the main point of what Jesus asks these people to do really is. You got it? So kids, listen for what the main point is. When you go to lunch today, see if you can tell your parents and summarize exactly what Jesus is telling a very unique group of people to do and to think in response to what he says. Mark chapter 2 Let me read the text for us, verses 13 through 17. And he, that is Jesus, and Jesus went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to him. And he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining, leaning over at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them. And they... We're following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners? Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not for those who are healthy who need the physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but came to call sinners. The word gospel, as you know, means good news. It's the good news that God has sent a way for man to be saved from himself and his wrath, to be saved from sin itself to be saved from the consequences of bad choices that are outside of the will of God, to be saved from the devil and hell, that's all good news. And we call that good news the gospel. It has so many layers and so many facets, like staring at a diamond when you look at the gospel and try to appreciate and understand its wonder. I think it's fair to say for all eternity, we're going to look at the gospel and be amazed and say, this is, this is better than I thought it was. Now, as we've studied many times before, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God saves people through the death of his son is really comprised of three simple parts. I like to use these three simple parts when I'm talking about the gospel with someone, when I'm evangelizing. Facts, meaning, and response. 
facts, meaning, and response. Or you could say facts, theology, and response. Facts. There are facts, historical facts about the Lord Jesus that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that happened. These are historical facts. They are real facts. These actually happen. This is not mythology. There's so much corroboration with so many texts and so many eyewitnesses. No one can make this up through four independent witnesses and four independent evangelists and come to the same conclusion. There are these facts about who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said that have to be understood as historical and believed. So it's facts. Secondly, there's meaning about those facts. There's a theology attached to these facts that goes beyond just the simple facts of history. If you were to go to any history book and see the history of George Washington or see the history of the the Civil War or the, the history of Russia or China, these are interesting facts that help us understand the course of history. They don't have theological significance between the relationship that people have with God and that God has with people. The facts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection have theological significance They mean something more than any other facts. So you have facts, you have meaning, and third, you have a response. These facts call for a response. What do we do about the historical facts about Jesus that lead us to understand that God provided a way for men, for sinners to be saved by his grace through the life and death and resurrection of his son, What do we do with that? Well, the answer to that is in today's text. If you want it in two words, you follow him. That's a big description in two words for repentance. Listen, the gospel is so full of multifaceted joys and wonders. It's full of grace and mercy and love and hope and forgiveness and purpose and on and on. But can I suggest to you that there's something inherent in the gospel that's not always recognizable at first blush. The gospel is, wait for it, scandalous. Contrarian unexpected. Now, to be a contrarian means that you think contrary to what others think. And to say that God is the ultimate contrarian would be an understatement. God's way of seeking and saving the lost is completely contrary to the way that men would have expected when Jesus came into the world. And certainly it's different than people would expect now. We do better and try harder. We're better than we are bad. We're better than so-and-so. It's always this, this act of trying to do more and try harder. And yet that's not the way God outlined a way a person should be and could be saved. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, he said, Consider your calling, brethren. Think about who you are who were called by Jesus. There were not many wise, according to the flesh, weren't the smartest. Not many mighty, you weren't the, the highest of reputation, you didn't have strength of finances or strength of, of um, physical prowess. Not many noble, you weren't the best and the, the brightest. 
But God has chosen, this is what God calls us. Are you ready for this? God has chosen the foolish things. Welcome to your biography. We are foolish things. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The fact that God has chosen the despised is at the centerpiece of the text before us. Verse 30 in that same chapter, by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Just so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now in our text today, we meet the people who would be categorized in these categories. They're not the wise of the world. They're not the popular. They're not the people who God would, who, who normal people would seek out or who have been sought out. Not only that, not only is it contrary to wisdom, and this is important because this was the accusation made against our Lord in the text. It was a scandal, completely scandalous. As we noted last week, Jesus' ministry is now a scandal in the eyes of the religious leaders who were not happy with what he was doing, not happy with what he was teaching, not happy with what, how the miracles he was performing and the demons he was casting out because Jesus was robbing them of their, their place. And so Jesus became the scandal, in quotation marks, of that early first century world where they would point to him and say, he's the problem, he's the scandal. And just when they were looking for such proof, Mark provides it. Remember last week, we saw Jesus heal and forgive sins. The scribes and religious authorities said, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, you're right, and I just forgave sins. Now we meet the scandal that's going to chase Jesus for the next 40 months. Let's look together at four contrarian actions of the scandalous Savior. Notice I put scandalous in quotation marks. This is the way they perceived him, certainly not the way you and I perceive him. But Mark wants us to see the scandal that was now this Messiah from Nazareth. Four contrarian actions of the scandalous Savior. The first is in verse 13. He graciously teaches those who will listen. This is how scandalous he was. He would graciously teach those who would listen. If that doesn't sound very scandalous, you're right. Verse 13. And he went out again by the seashore. By the way, the, the tense of these verbs in the Greek says that this was something he regularly, normally, in an ongoing fashion did. He liked to walk by the beach. But he didn't do so just to get the sand between his toes and have that, that good feeling when you see the sun rise or the sun set on the water. He did so because he knew that that's where people would go to be and fellowship and socialize and work. 
he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. All the people is as big a group as Mark can grab with the language that he has. Everyone who could was coming out to see this miracle worker. But here's what's interesting. After he heals the paralytic, he casts out demons, he heals leprosy. The accent here is they were coming out and Jesus, once he had the crowd gathered, was doing what? Preaching. He was teaching them. Our guide, our narrator, Mark, takes us back to the shore of the Lake of Galilee for another classroom session with the master teacher. I'm amazed that when Jesus drew a crowd, he didn't show off his power. He didn't say, who's got a problem? Who's got a physical deformity that I can fix? Oh, they were all asking about that. When he had them together, he taught them. His ministry was characterized certainly by miracles, exorcisms, healings, but his signature in his ministry was teaching. Mark says so in so many words. Look over for a moment in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 verse 1. Mark says, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, his habit, he began to teach them. That's significant. Mark will tell us that his teaching ministry was significant and the signature of what he did. Mark 14, 49. Every day I was with you, he said, in the temple, teaching And you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. In other words, Jesus says by his own lips, Mark records by his own pen, that the habit of Jesus when he drew a crowd was to teach. Was content driven. Now back to Mark 2. On this day, he went to one of his favorite spots, the lakeside. A large crowd follows him there. We've often noted his kindness, his grace. When he heals, he casts out demons. He feeds the hungry. But the most gracious thing Jesus did was to teach. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the way Jesus would instruct through parables. Look at what he said in the Olivet Discourse. Look what he said in his farewell discourse. He was a master teacher because he understood that words move the human soul. And when they're words of life and eternal words, they change the life and mark eternity. Jesus, though, recognized that as the crowds would come and listen, just as we saw in our Palm Sunday reading, these were fickle crowds. I was thinking this week, looking at this passage about John 6. In verses 66 to 68, remember Jesus has just taught on the sovereignty of God and salvation. No one can come unless the Father draws him. All that the Father gives me, I will not let go. They are they're my hands. In verse 66 of John 6, John says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the 12, I love this, you do not want to go away also, do you? And listen, listen to what Peter says love this. Lord, to whom will we go? You have words of eternal life. He had been hearing Jesus' teaching. 
Jesus has words of eternal life. But we'll see in the book of Mark, not everyone who hears the gospel and hears what Jesus teaches follows Jesus. The grace here is for us to recognize that Jesus does indeed still possess words of eternal life and they've been recorded for us in the four gospels and in the epistles. Let me be as clear as I think I can be. It is impossible to obey and follow Jesus if you do not know what he said. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Well, yes, but specifically it's read the gospels more sermon. How can you know what he says if you have not read them. What a privilege. What a privilege we have to have a book where they're recorded. We don't even have multiple scrolls we have to carry around. It's in a book. It's probably on your phone. What a gift. What grace is in the gift of the teaching of our Lord. Why is that contrary? Why is that scandalous? Because the Pharisees and the Scribes wanted the power. They wanted people to see them for their position. Jesus had all the power as a position. He was the God of the universe. And he just taught to teach for the benefit of the people who heard him. The great servant. He graciously teaches those who will listen. And remember, not everyone did. A second contrarian action of this scandalous Savior is in verses 14 and 15. He graciously engages those who are, I love this word, pariah. That means someone who is socially unacceptable and undesirable. He graciously engages those who are undesirable, pariahs, social outcasts. Verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the toll booth or the tax booth. Now we find out in Matthew's gospel that Levi is who? Matthew. Matthew, when he gives this same account, says this was Matthew. And I think if anybody knew who Levi was, it was Matthew. So his name was changed. That was certainly the habit of the Lord. Remember, Cephas became Peter. I love the way that, um, that uh, uh, Mark humanizes Levi here for us. He's a publican or a tax collector. And he has a dad. And his dad's name is Alphaeus. Why does he stick that in there? First of all, just so we'll know who he is. But I think secondly, to show us, he's got a dad. This is a real man, not just a scoundrel. Now, that's going to be important in just a moment. To properly understand this, we have to have a little background. Capernaum, remember, is the north shore of the, of the Lake of Galilee. It's situated right there on the northwestern shore. And it was on a road between Damascus and the Mediterranean Sea. It was the major highway. There was a long ridge line that went up from the sea up uh, uh, where traveling would have almost been impossible. And the trail, the road went right by the seashore, right by the, I've been on this road uh, uh, myself. 
And on this, there was a customs station, a toll booth, a tax booth that Mark calls out here. Think toll booth when you stop on the 70 going toward Toledo, Topeka. You can go to Toledo if you want to. But going toward Topeka, you'd be going the wrong direction. If you go to Topeka, you stop and they, you get a ticket. And then when you get off, they say, thank you for your trouble. And you can now pay us for that. Well, this was a place where people who were walking by had to pay tariffs and taxes for the things they were transporting. They had to pay taxes for living in this area. Levi would have been an employee of Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. He was the ruler of the Galilean district. And as a tax collector, he would have been hated by the Jews, hated by the Israelites. They were considered traitors, hired hands by Rome to collect taxes from the inhabitants of an area and also from the travelers who would go through that area. Here's how it worked. Rome would set an amount, usually a percentage um, of, um, well, let's back up. It wasn't a percentage of your income tax like you and I have. It was a, a fee. And whether you're rich or, or uh, poor, you had that fee that you needed to, to pay. And you say, what was the percentage? We don't know. And the reason we don't know is they gave a, a, an amount to the tax collectors to collect but then the tax collector could, for his own profit, add whatever surplus charge he wanted to on top of the tax, and he could pocket that. Not only could he pocket that, it was supported by Rome. Not only was it supported by Rome, anyone who gave grief to the tax collector could be killed. This was extortion at the highest level. And for a Jew to do this was the, the highest level of treachery and being a traitor. They became wealthy at the expense of their own people. Introduce Matthew Levi. Well known. No doubt he was well known in the area. And no doubt he was well hated. And Jesus says to the traitor, you, follow me. He got up and he followed him. He was sitting on the road extorting people as they would go back and forth, collecting taxes from the locals, collecting taxes from those who were traveling. Get up out of the tax booth. Come and follow me. And he did. Jesus extends, kids, here it is, the same invitation to Levi that he did to the two sets of brothers in Mark 1. Follow me. Follow me. This was not a request on Twitter or Instagram. Follow me. What did it mean? What did it mean when Jesus said, follow me? Well, Matthew 
who was the one in this tax booth who followed him, records Jesus' explanation of this. Listen to what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There it is. There are the qualifiers for following him. Jesus said this. Matthew remembered it. Matthew did it. He goes on, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You could even say, what will a man keep in exchange for his soul? Now think about Matthew's sacrifice. And I think Mark puts it here right after chapter 1. With a purpose. Matthew's sacrifice, Levi's sacrifice, was completely different than the sacrifice of the four brothers Peter and Andrew, James and John. Completely different. He gave up more than they did. You say, how can you say that? They could always go back to their profession if things went south with Jesus, right? They could go fishing. In fact, after Jesus' death, where do these guys go? Fishing. They went back to a very respectable business. When Matthew said, I'm all in, there was no going back. Let's say that Jesus gets executed and Matthew's still alive. What possible job could he go back to? He was already hated. He couldn't go back and say, hey, all that moral stuff I've been teaching with this great teacher Jesus, just kidding. Give me your taxes again. He was done. When he got up from that tax booth, he literally left everything, his way of making money, his friends, which were only in that cohort, which are going to show up at dinner in a moment, No going back from Matthew. He could never return to his job as a publican, either socially, ethically, morally, or spiritually. His sacrifice was total. So, kids, back to what you're grabbing, all of us. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? This seems to be Jesus' um, call. He told the four brothers. He's telling Levi. He's going to continue in the book of Mark and in the Gospels saying, follow me. Follow me. That's not simply praying a prayer, making a decision, walking an aisle, going to camp. It means a total, absolute commitment to who Jesus is, what he taught, what he said. It doesn't mean, by the way, abandoning your responsibilities at home. When Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't mean just leave your family, leave your job, be a bad employee, and just only do things that are associated with me. Read the rest of the New Testament. Lots of instruction about being a good worker, being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good child. But in the context of all these, remember Colossians 1, Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.18, is to have first place not above everything, He's not number one on the priority list. He's to have first place 
in everything. So he's first place in our marriage, in our child raising, in our jobs, in our work, in our recreation, in our eating, in our sleeping, in everything he is to have preeminence. That's what it means to follow him. And you say, well, uh, what if you don't follow him? John, 1 John chapter 2, one passage we've looked at many times. 1 John 2, by this we know that we've come to know him. I want to know what comes after that verse. Here's how you know you're a Christian. Here's how to know you've come to know him. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Remember how important it was to hear what Jesus said and taught? Then he goes on. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments. John says, he's a liar in the truth not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And here it is. Here's the match. The one who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk or live in the same manner as Jesus walked. That's what it means to follow him. Jesus is not a part of our life. He is the point of our life. There is no such thing as a part-time Christian. No such thing as a segmented week where Christ is central on Sundays, maybe Wednesdays, but not in every context in which we find ourselves. Think of our mission statement. We exist to magnify God, spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them, shepherding them, listen, to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated as Jesus taught in the word of God. He tells Matthew, if you want to have a relationship with me, you follow me. What does that mean? You commit your life to my lordship. I'm your master. You're my slave. I'm the leader. You're the follower. When you have a decision, it comes to my values and my principles. Why? Because he's, he's, got a, 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 he's an egomaniac? No, because his ways are best for us. He's for us, not against us. He's always looking out for our good, Romans 8 says. Verse 15. Next, or it happened, as he was reclining at the table, boom, stop right there, change of scenery. We've moved from the side of the lake to dinner. He was reclining at the table in his house. Lots of discussion about whose house this is. Who's the antecedent of this? Is it Jesus or is it Matthew? The text is unclear. My suspicion is that it's Matthew's house, can't be clear of that. If it's his house, which might have been Peter's house, it doesn't really matter where it was. It matters who came. He was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I love this next phrase. For there were many of them. There was this whole subterranean cohort of people. They found each other because of Matthew and found themselves at dinner with the Savior. And they were following him too. Wow. Do you think 
You think Levi was an evangelist? How did all these tax collectors suddenly coagulate into a group and end up at dinner with Jesus? I don't think it's hard to imagine. Matthew knew them. He hit the network. Translate, the word translated dinner, by the way, literally means at the, at the reclining. Now, that's important because sometimes you would eat standing up, sometimes in the field. The reclining meant a formal dinner. Remember, we've talked about this when we looked at the Last Supper. It would be in a, a U-shaped um, uh, table that would have been about a foot high with pillows all around the outside. The servants would come into the U, the U open part of it, and serve the people around. It was, it was a formal dinner. Here's Jesus sitting at a very large table. It says there are many of them. A very big U, a very, very large group having a formal dinner. And there's two groups of people here. Tax collectors. We know who they are. We've already seen. The extortionists, the traitors. And then Mark says, and sinners. Now, I know what you're thinking, but stop for a minute. You're thinking, oh, the people who sin. You'd be right. That, that's all of them. He could have just said, the people who sin, that would have included everybody. This, though, this noun version of harmardios that we, we talk about, the sinners had a very specific application in this culture. It was a technical word more than a theological one. Yes, everyone's a sinner, but this word was used, listen, to describe a group of Jews who were irreligious and did not keep the law. And it was the, der, der, uh, the um, uh, divisive, derisive thing, rather, for, for the scribes to call these people, you sinners, you don't do what we say and come where we teach and listen to what we command. You typically poor people who spend all their try, time working to simply make a living and they didn't have time to do what the scribes and the Pharisees told them to do. This was the word that the scribe used for them. They were the social and financial outcasts. By the way, here in verse 15 is the first use of the term disciple in Mark, and it will be used, get this, 58 times in Mark's gospel. Obviously, the theme is what it means to be a learner or pupil or follower of Jesus. Now, let's punch pause for a moment here. One of the most notable features of Jesus' life and his ministry is how he constantly and consistently engages people that are the undesirables of the culture. At least undesirable according to the popular people, the religious people, and the self-righteous people. Not everyone who did then and who now follows Jesus is socially acceptable. Just a little footnote, there's a disturbing trend. There is a disturbing trend in some churches to set up their whole church to attract and be built upon the opposite of the outcasts. It seems that the criteria for some of these churches is to be a progressive, attractive, to be cool, hip, young, popular. That's not reflective of the people Jesus called. Now, Young, hip, cool, wealthy, popular, certainly should be in the target zone of the gospel, but to build a church around those people would be foreign to Jesus' thinking. 
If we believe the words in the heart of Jesus here, we can easily see who his church is made up of. It's the outcasts. Said another way, a healthy church is made up of young and old, popular and outcasts, poor and rich, cool and uncool, attractive and unattractive, socially acceptable and socially bothersome. He graciously engages the pariahs. Thirdly, he graciously provokes those who are self-righteous. He graciously provokes those who are self-righteous. Verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees, this is another way of saying when the, when the theologians, the scholars of the Pharisaical sect, the Sadducees had their own scribes, their theologians. These were the scribes of the Pharisees, probably the ones who had traveled up from Jerusalem to try to trap him. When they saw he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, stop right there. When they saw he was, do you think they were at the dinner? No. No way they would have defiled themselves to go to this dinner, and nor would they have been invited probably. I'm sure they see the food going in. And the servants going in. And Jesus going in. And tax collectors going in. And sinners going in. And they say, what in the world is going on in there? So they, they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. They said to his disciples, by the way, a little footnote on that is in um, a Luke 5.30. We find out they said also to him, they said to his disciples and to him, why is he eating? With these riffraff, the tax collectors and the sinners. They were keeping track of Jesus. They were keeping a ledger of who followed him. At some point, probably after the dinner, they engaged the disciples, they engaged Jesus. And they confront him with why in the world would he associate with such people? Now, this is gracious of him to provoke these Pharisees, these, these hypocrites. It's so gracious that he would provoke them to see what he's really about. He didn't just dismiss them. He engaged them and he taught them, the people who would ultimately be the conspirers for his death. Think for a moment how this riffraff had been treated by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. I was thinking about this. Um, I was sitting in my office just trying to think through the psychology of this, the, the feelings of this. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever, you ever been in a group? Obviously, I have by asking these questions. <laughs> have you ever been in a group and said something you thought was funny and said something you thought would be funny? And it was met with embarrassing and scornful looks. You know that feeling of, oh, it's quiet and I don't want it to be quiet. And people are looking at me and I wish they weren't looking at me. You know that feeling? That's how these people felt. How about this? Ever been left out of an invitation list to something? Ever found out that a group of people you know were doing something and you weren't doing it? And you checked your phone and your email and your texts 
and there was no invitation. You even looked in the snail mail and you said, they did something and left me out. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but how many have felt that way? All of us. You know that feeling? That's how these people felt all the time. They were left out of everything, looked down upon by everyone. And Jesus, the healer, the master teacher, he says to these tax collectors and sinners, let's have dinner. Wow, what is your attitude toward the undesirables? We'll come back to that. And fourthly, the fourth contrarian action of the scandalous Savior, verse 17, he graciously calls those who are needy. He graciously calls those who are needy. Verse 17, kids, this is the climax. This is the point, ready? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, so he's still talking, his grace is still flowing toward these enemies and these skeptics and these hypocrites and these accusers. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, they're the ones who need the physician. I did not come to call the righteous, but the riffraff, the sinners. Jesus, here's the question these religious leaders have, and he hurls back an answer they would not and could not handle. He speaks directly to them, the text says. And then he uses an analogy and explains exactly what he meant. The illustration is that of a doctor, a physician, and the sick or the injured. And the point is that healthy people do not have need to see the doctor. I have to put something on my calendar to remind me to do a, a yearly annual physical checkup. Because unless there's something wrong, I don't think I need to see the doctor. It's the same for everyone. But, can I just confess something? I am the worst wimp when it comes to being sick on the planet. I get a runny nose. I need five antibiotics. I need to be hospitalized. Honey, please, chicken, noodles, soup. When you're sick, you know you need help. When you're injured, you know you need help. Think of the ridiculous nature of this analogy he's using. Can you imagine someone going up to one of the doctors in our church and saying something like, why do you spend so much time with sick and injured people? Dr. Opie, Dr. Church, what are you guys doing around all these People who aren't well, don't you have anything better to do with your time? And they would say, you are nuts. This is who I am, what I've trained for. This is what I do. The question's absurd. That's Jesus' point. He is the physician of sick souls. And drum roll, ready? Everyone's soul needs healing. It's sick. 
He continues, I didn't come to call the righteous people, but I came to call the riffraff, the outcasts, the sinners. Now, when he says the righteous people, that's a barb toward them. You think you're righteous. If you got it all figured out, you don't really need me. You have a righteousness concocted of your own. What do we study for five years in the book of Romans? There is none righteous. No, not one. Tongue in cheek, he says, righteous people don't need healing for their souls. Namely, you scribes who think you've got it wired. It's those who think they are unworthy of God. It's the the sinner who beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the outcast, the sinner. It's not for those who don't see them. They, they see themselves as not that bad. Can I just add to that that this is such a perfect description of those who live in Metro Kansas City, Johnson County. For the most part, people around us don't think they need much of anything. Try going up to someone and say, do you understand your deepest need? They'll go, well, maybe more stuff or a container to put my stuff in. They certainly don't see themselves as unworthy sinners in desperate need of a savior, but that is the condition of every human heart. Jesus tells us that he alone can fix the desperate condition of our sick and dying souls and not everyone will understand or hear the true diagnosis for their sin-sick, shriveled-up souls. It's contrary. The people who look the most religious, Jesus says, you're the one who need me most. Isaiah 55, 6 and following, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous men, let him forsake his thoughts. Return to the Lord. God will have compassion on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Listen, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What is he saying? The way I save and the people to, I, to whom I look for salvation are not the people you would normally look at. I went to an evangelistic training course years ago. I was in high school by well-meaning. These are well-meaning people. And they actually told us with a chalkboard, the first people that you as high school students should go after to win are the captains on the football team and the, the head of the cheerleading squad. Because if you can get them to convert, everyone will follow them. That's not what Jesus did. <laughs> he went after the nobodies. He went after the people who were hated, the pariahs, the outcasts. So let me ask you a few questions. Have you come to the place where you recognize how sick is your soul and how desperately you need only Jesus Christ to heal and save and touch it. Have you, have you come to that place? Is Jesus just like kind of one, one thing you add to your life? Secondly, do you know what it means to follow him? Following him always includes the sacrifice of the things, I love the hymn, that charm you most, that you love Oh, thirdly, 
this is a stinger. How do you view, if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you view the outcasts, the needy, the destitute? How do you view the people in our church who may want to spend time with you or talk to you who are not in your social orbit? share a little secret with you. I have prayed that God would send every misfit in Kansas City to our church and that this is a place they would feel the love of Jesus. This is a place where the outcasts ought to come and say, I'm home. Those ta- Matthew got all the tax collectors said, you gotta, you gotta meet this guy. And when they met the guy and the four brothers, probably six, but that's from Matthew. These, this group of people, they were home. They were accepted. They were loved. They met, they met words of eternal life. Oh, Listen, friends, the church, our church should never be a place where someone who is socially outcast, someone who is weird, can we say it? That's most of us. Comes and says, they treat me like I'm this way. That's not how our Savior treated people that way because we are that way to him. A healthy church is a, is a haven, a refuge for outcasts and misfits. How do you want our church to look? And then the last question I want to ask you is, do you see anyone beyond the reach of the gospel? It's important. I think if, if uh, uh, you know, th- these four brothers and Jesus had had a strategy session the night before and said, okay, who are we going to go after tomorrow? the last expectation on their list would have been Levi, the guy on the road in the toll booth, in the tax booth, let's go, let's go ask him to follow and be one of us. There's every indication that because of Christ, they instantly accepted Matthew. You see the layers of application that just flow from the gracious Savior? So, kids, back to you. Jesus said, what you need to do is follow, say it with me, me. So everything in our world ought to point us to what it means to understand how we can better follow the Lord Jesus. And that is your lunch assignment, is to talk to your parents about what that means.